And thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast from Connect Church. We'd like to invite you to join us in person at 1101 West Grand in Ponca City, Oklahoma, or on Facebook Live. Go to connectchurchpc.com to learn more about how we are helping people connect every day. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. Next Sunday is my favorite time change Sunday the entire year. I think we should have like four of them. But you get an extra hour of sleep. I don't know what it is. But I'm tired of taking the kids to school in the dark. And so I, I take Lance. Lance goes to school over here at West. And so I get in my office. And then I watch the sunrise. And I'm like, and I don't want to do that anymore. And, and so, you know, get an extra hour of sleep. It is always an amazing time. And it's fun. It's exciting. And it's a great time. I think we should petition the U.S. Congress to give us four of them a year. In the spring, instead of springing forward, we just fall back again. Does that work? Can we do that? I mean, I can petition them, right? You know, it's, uh, I, I was, uh, my, my uh, boss, Devin Smith, texted me this morning and said, hey, I'm praying for you, praying for Connect Church, praying for a great day, and I said, thanks. I'm a little bit tired it's, uh, you know, it's sports season right now, and I love sports. I'm a Braves fan, and so I, I stayed up late watching the game last night, and it didn't actually start getting exciting until the sixth inning, and, and then my mind was, like, completely blown, and then I had to stay up and watch all the post-game stuff and them talking about it, and, and then I, I woke up early this morning and thought, man, I wonder if I can watch a little bit of Sports Center talking about the Braves before I go, go to work, and if you're wondering what time that makes me get up in the morning, I was up at 4.30 this morning, and if you're wondering about why I'm talking so fast... Five lattes will do this for anybody. But we also have Little League football that's going on, and we have a team that's playing at 11 o'clock this morning, so they're gone. We have a team that's playing at 12.30, and so they have to leave a little bit early to, to go there. And then my son's playing at 1.30. His team is playing at 1.30. And in the Little League football, they have, like, weight limits for each class of how much you can weigh. And at the beginning of the season, Lance wanted to wait because he wanted to play running back. And I told him right from the get-go, I said, dude, you're a big boy. There's no way. And he weighed in at 153. But, you know, everyone's been remarking about how much he's slimmed down. He's gotten taller. and His shoulders have gotten broader. And he, he's looking like a man now and, unfortunately, smelling like one. <laughs> and uh, so last night, he, he was in trouble this weekend. So the only fun thing he could do all weekend long was help me out with stuff. And so we're doing the last-minute stuff, getting ready for glow night tonight. And he goes, Dad, I want to weigh myself. He goes, I think I might have dropped down to 135. If I'm at 135, I want to ask the coach to let me run the ball tomorrow. And I'm like, ah, okay, whatever, Lance. So we go home, steps on the scale. He was 161. <laughs> I mean, his heart just sank. He goes, how did I gain weight? I'm like, well, muscle weighs more. And you've gotten taller. 
But you, you've been fortunate enough to join us for week two of Master Your Money and what that looks like. And, and I was talking to my mom this last week, and I said, man, my mom, I appreciate some of the uh, things that you taught me growing up and some of the things you, you put into my life. And sometimes they were unintentional, sometimes they were intentional. But then uh, this book, Ron Blue, Master Your Money, who's been a great financial advisor, he was Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey was Dave Ramsey. And so we've got some video clips. And again, I just want to tell you, we have a Wesleyan church in Atlanta, Georgia, and their pastor went and interviewed them. And so they said, hey, this is open to any Wesleyan church that wants to use these clips in your message. If you want to talk about finances, it's there. But again, I want to remind you of the five financial categories. There's a picture that'll pop up here. Ah, oh, there it is. We, you have struggling, and, and we know what that's like. And I've told this story when Terry and I first got married, we were struggling financially. We would come home, and this is how we would entertain ourselves. We would do leg wrestling. They're like, oh, this is so much fun. No, it was not fun. But then we would just do stuff to entertain ourselves. We, we did revolutionary stuff. We would actually sit down. Now, get this. I mean, this is crazy. And we would talk to one another. Yeah. And if you have kids, you know that talking to one another is like an, a, a luxury item that you don't get anymore. And then, so, but we, fortunately, we weren't there very long, and we went to surviving, and you know what surviving's like, where you have an, an, enough money to get by, and every once in a while, you're able to splurge and go to Brahms or buy Doritos or whatever your splurging is. And then, it's just fun things where you get the stable where you're not really worried about money. It's not like you're going crazy. It's not like you're going down and just letting it rain or anything like that, but you are stable. Was that church appropriate? Okay, sorry, sir. And then you have secure. And, and here's the thing, and, and here's what my, my parents have taught me. If you're willing to be frugal with your money, if you're willing to, to, to live within your means, then you can get to an area of life where you are secure. And, and I, I tease my parents about this a lot, but growing up, they did not buy anything frivolous. Uh, the only frivolous things my parents bought on their cars was air conditioning. It's only because they didn't want to sweat. But we didn't have power windows. We, we didn't have, I mean, all these fancy radios. I, I mean, we just, whatever the car came with, that's what we had. And then now, you know, look at their lives. They're, able, they're, sec they're secure and they're able to do things that are nice. And then you get to this point of surplus. And the great thing about surplus is you can help people out around you. You can use your surplus to bless other people. You can use your surplus to, to bless everything that God has in store for you. And it's a great place to be. And we're going to listen in. And it's a recap from last week of Ron Blue talking about the five biblical principles that we're to live by. Listen to this with us. Ron, among your many discoveries, one of them that I read is there are five biblical financial principles. Tell us what those are and talk a little bit about them. Well, the interesting thing was is sometimes you don't know what you know. And I was testifying before a congressional subcommittee in the early 90s. Senator Dodd from Connecticut was doing the interviewing. And his question was, what would you tell the American family about their money? And right off the top of my head, I thought, what I'm going to tell him is going to make him laugh. 
So I said, Senator, I would tell them to spend less than they earn, avoid the use of debt, build some margin into their finances, and set long-term goals so that they could prioritize their, their money between the short-term and the long-term. And I stopped at those four and looked up, and Senator picked up his pencil, and he wrote them down, and he repeated them back to me. And then he said, well, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. And I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. And we had a great conversation. We had a great conversation on that. But those four principles, when you add to it, give generously, are five biblical principles of money management. And the illustration of the it works for the government, it works for the single mom, it works for the billionaire, it works in Africa, it works in Japan. Those are like biblical principles. Those are transcendent principles. Live within your income, avoid debt, save set long-term goals and give generously, and they're never going to change. They're always going to be relevant, and they're always going to work. What does, it get to, what does it take to get to the next step? Well, you live by these five principles. Spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, build margin, save money, that is. Set long-term goals and give generously. If we are willing to live within this, if we're willing to live like no one else, then we'll be able to live like no one else. If we're willing to make sacrifices and say, you know what, I'm not going to go all crazy, then later in life, we'll have a security about us. When I was going to youth camp as a, as, a, as a youth, my parents would give my brother and I $5. The $5 was to pay for any type of concessions that we would buy there and to buy a meal on the way home. By the way, a Big Mac value meal back in the day was a buck eighty-nine, so it wasn't like we at five bucks now. You wouldn't even buy you a, like a large fry or anything like that. But back in the day, it would buy you a Big Mac value meal. And so I'd go to youth camp and I would spend all of my money. And I'd go to Ken and my brother, and he would loan me some other money to pay for it. And then he would buy me lunch on the way home, and he still had money left over. So as you can tell, when we were growing up, my brother completely bought into what my parents were teaching. And I was like, I've got my brother to bail me out. But at some point, I had to go and put my big boy pants on and learn how to do this by myself. Today, we're going to talk about avoiding the use of debt and how we build margin. This is so tough because we live in a society that is driven by debt. They challenge us. To, to, to spend more, and if you spend more to make you happy, if you do more, and all these other things, it, our society, all the commercials, they're aimed at getting us to spend money. Listen to Ron talk about this. So why do I need to spend less than I make in a world that lets me spend more than I make? Well, yeah, it's a, we have redefined being able to afford it. Now, being able to afford it means I can make the credit card payments. And uh, again, I've lived long enough and I've seen us become a debt-driven society. I mean, look at our government uh, as an example. And people, I mean, where do you go that they don't offer you a credit card so that you get a 10% discount on this particular purchase and now they've got you. And so there's no real encouragement uh, to not overspend. I mean, I need it, <laughs> you know, so, and it's so easy. Um, 
so it becomes, I, I think, I really think also that people need accountability in order to hang in there on a lot of this. It's hard to do it by yourself. It is. It's even hard to do it by yourself if you're, as a couple, you agree. Even as husband and wife, if you agree, it's still pretty tough. It is, but it's worth it. It's worth it. We, we need to rise above our debt-driven culture. Our culture has redefined what it means to afford something. And the question that they ask us is not, can you afford to buy this? It's, can you afford to pay your credit card payment on this? So I was in college. I worked for Sears. And, and at Sears, I, was, I worked commission. And I loved working commission. And every once in a while, they would have like a monthly deal. And here was the monthly deal. They would give us $10 per credit card app that we had filled out. I'm like, that is so crazy. And I remember one time, my, our manager came in, we're talking about this, and he goes, well, you know the reason why they do that? Because they make so much money in credit cards. And so paying you $10 is not even a drop in the bucket. And I, I looked at him, I go, hey, Bill, can we ask for more, like $25 per credit app? And he's like, no, yeah, I know. Always thinking about how we could, how we could turn this into something. See, the problem with greed is that it masks itself as need. We say, well, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And then our kids come to us all the time. They say, hey, I really need this. When actually they just want it. You see, we all battle, and we're all capable of greed. It's this internal struggle that we have, this internal battle that we have, because we are, like a famous movie said back in the 80s, Wall Street, greed is good. And we buy into it. Not saying that we're greedy people, but it just is so easy to come into our lives. A few years back, a 17-year-old Chinese boy boy from China, made the news because he sold one of his kidneys on the black market so he could buy an iPad. And you think about that. My good friend Kenneth just had to go in and have a kidney removed, and they didn't give him an iPad for it. And I'm like, man, you should have asked for more. You see, the Bible has more to say about money than it is about faith or love. And, and so if we want to measure where our heart is, our treasure is right there. And, and so what do we dream about? What do we daydream about? I mean, even last night as I was watching the Braves game and I'm watching the, the post highlights and, and, and I, was, I was living off every pitch from the sixth inning on. I, I just want you to know that. And it, it is very unhealthy. I'm going to have a heart attack. But I wonder how many times am I that consumed about God? Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 13. See, here's the background story for this. In, in Luke, it's called the sermon in the field because Jesus had a series of sermons that he preached and people came. And so there were probably between Four and twenty thousand, four thousand and twenty thousand people who had gathered to listen to Jesus preach. And so someone in the crowd hollers out to him and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. See, here's the here's another background story for this. In for Jewish people, 
It, no matter how many children you had, instead of dividing up your inheritance equally, for example, Terry and I have two sons. We have Jack and we have Lance. Here's how it would work. Jack would get two-thirds of our inheritance and Lance would get one-third. If we were to have 12 sons, which I asked Terry about that and she said, no, thank you. Our oldest son would get two-thirteenths and the rest of them would get one-thirteenth. He always got a double portion. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you see where Elisha says to Elijah, and Elijah asks him, what do you want from me? He says, I want a double portion. What he's saying is, I want to be your direct descendant. I want to be your, your son, and I want to be your firstborn. That's what he's saying to him. And so here we have this story. This guy's coming and saying, hey, I'm the second child. I'm the second fiddle. And if you're ever the second fiddle, I totally get you. We get shortchanged on everything. If you ever have questions about it, my second will tell you that he's always shortchanged. But he goes to Jesus, a teacher, tell my brother to give me to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me to judge or an arbitrator, arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. He told them this parable. Did you get that? A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. It doesn't matter what you own. That is not the measure of your life. He told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for, your, for years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. We, we read this parable, and there's two different ways, or actually there's three different ways of looking at this. And there's a, the people that will look at this and say, man, you know that you're blessed by God if you're rich because God blesses you, therefore you have money. And so there's this prosperity gospel out there that says if you're, if you're really doing what God has called you to do, he will bless you. Uh, and then there's this other part, and they say, hey, you know, um, you know that God has blessed you if you're poor because uh, People who love money hate God, and they, they use all these scriptures, and they pull them out of context, and the people over here in prosperity, they use scriptures, they pull them out of context, and, and so they can't really define someone who's being blessed by God, but yet it has no possessions. I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen people who've been blessed by God who were in poverty, such as Mother Teresa. No one would say that she had sinned. I mean, she willingly gave up all of her possessions to serve God, but just because you have possessions doesn't mean that that God is, is blessing you and God hasn't forgotten about you. But there's a middle ground in which we stand in, which we live in, and it's called stewardship. And what that means is that the, the word stewardship actually means manager. How are you managing God's resources? And so how, what are we doing with it? Listen, we all must deal with greed. We've got, we've got to deal with it. There, there are times in my life when I watch a commercial, I'm like, I want that. And then I see how much it costs, and I'm like, I want that less now. 
and there's this battle that takes place. Here's something that's funny. In 1973, the year I was born, do you know how much a TV cost? $1,700 for a, a nice console TV with legs on it. Uh, I think the shag carpet might have been free on that one, but it's crazy. We look at TVs nowadays, you're like, man, if you buy a $1,700 TV, you bought a really nice TV. Remember when the, when the big flat screens first came out? I do. My, my parents went and bought Terry and I one for, for Christmas, and so we actually showed up and I, I, I remember showing up at Sears at 4.30 in the morning. And we were waiting at the door. And it's so funny. It's so funny. Waiting at the door. There's about 20 of us waiting to get into Sears at 4.30 in the morning. They're opening up the doors at 4.30. So we probably got there at 4.15 or so. And we're all staying there. And pretty soon, we look over. And this door over there, people start running. And I'm like, that door's not open. Just this door. And so we all take off running. And so we all running over to the door, and, and mom goes, run ahead. I'm like, don't worry, mom, I'm going to run ahead. But we know what it's like, right? And they come down in price since then. But we see things like, I need that. I need that. I need that. In chapter 5 of Ron Blue's book, I'm just going to read a, a, a small section here. He says, the financial topic of death is clouded by emotion, misunderstanding, and poor teaching. He says, debt is not a sin. Just because you have debt doesn't mean you've, you've sinned. The Bible discourages the use of debt, but it's not prohibited. It doesn't tell you never, ever go in debt. Debt is never the real problem. It is only symptomatic of real problems. Greed, self-indulgence, impatience, fear, poor self-image. Debt can be defined many ways. And he defines it as money owed to anyone. So what does debt actually do? Listen to what Ron tells us. You made a statement that I thought was intriguing, that people often use debt to increase their standard of living, when in fact it can actually lower your standard of living. Yeah. Can you explain that? I can, because uh, let's say that I... Uh, run up a credit card bill or car debt or something of $5,000, and, and now I'm paying interest of some amount on that. And what happens is that because I borrowed the money, I didn't have the income, but I have to pay it back with my income. And I have to pay it back with after-giving dollars and after-tax dollars and after-interest dollars. So I have to pay back more than what I got and it's, and it's all with after-tax dollars. So I have to lower my standard of living in the future by borrowing in the present. You know, it, it says, well, I have it, yeah, but it's cost you a lot in the future. You have mortgaged the future, and it's cost you more in the future than if you had waited, saved the money, and, and paid for it. We've become a debt-driven society. We're trying to raise our standard of living by borrowing our way to the next level, and you can never borrow your way to the next level. And I remember a lesson that my mom and dad taught me growing up, and they said, hey, when you get older, there's this a change. But we, we've shared it with Jack as well. 
So Jack has his, his first job. You go into the perk, he'll make you a great coffee drink, and it's a, it's a, it's a great place to work. And we're so proud that, that Mrs. Green hired Jack. But we told him, hey, Jack, when you get your paycheck, first 10% goes to God no matter what. No questions asked. First 10% always goes to God. And I said, but after that, that second 50% goes into savings. Why? Because he's saving for college. He's saving for when he becomes an adult to have a nest egg set up so he's not leaving the house going, I have nothing. And then 40% is what you can, you can spend on, on, on just fun stuff. Dates, construction stuff for a football game, I guess, is something that you can put on that list. Uh, Sonic, all of those things, they all go in that, that 40%. But 10, 50, 40 but my parents taught me this, and this is what they said. Your first 10% always goes to God. You give God your first fruits. You honor God with first of everything. And we'll talk about that later in this message series. And then the next 10% goes into savings. And, and, and savings, whether it be you're saving up for a family vacation or you're saving up to, to, to buy a home, to put a down payment down, no matter what that, that is, that, that second 10% is money that you put in savings, getting ready. And also, in case something happens to your car and you've got to go to the auto shop, you're like, oh, man, what do I do now? I don't have the money for it. And you always be saving that. Always have that nest egg there so that you can take care of those expenses. And then with the remaining 80% is what we live on. And, and so that's what helps you get from one level to the next level. But there's certain things that we have to protect ourselves from. One is impulse. We have to protect ourselves from impulse. And so many times we walk into some place and we're like, wow, I need that and I need it now. I had one guy tell me one time, he said, here's what I do with my credit cards. And he, this guy was a, a, a money micromanager. He goes, I put them in a bowl and I fill the bowl up with water and then I take that bowl and I stick it in the freezer. And if ever I have the impulse to buy something I have to use my credit card on, I go home, and by the time the ice is melted and the credit card is free to where I can use it, if I still want to buy it, then I go ahead and buy it. If not, I just refreeze it and stick it back in there, or refill the, the bowl and stick it back in the freezer. But impulse, I mean, it just drives, it drives everything we do. Listen to what Ron Blue says about impulse. Everybody hates doing a budget. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Everybody hates doing a budget. Mm -hmm. What do you say to people? How do you advise people to get into budgeting and living inside a budget? Because spending less than you make is impossible without a budget. Agreed? Budgeting needs to be done because I need to do it in order to accomplish my goals, not just because it's a discipline. It'll become a habit to you, and if you plan and manage your money. And a budget's just a guide anyway. It's a bunch of pre-made decisions. And once the habits are established, you don't need to do much more with the budget. It's more to get control of where you're spending your money first. He said, a budget is to get control of where you're spending your money. It's just a bunch of pre-made decisions. And I mean, when you're married, nobody gets excited about sitting down and talking budget. When Terry comes up to me and says, hey, Mark, let's talk budget, I'm like, man, that's the best thing I've ever talked about in our entire married life. But what does a budget do? It protects us from impulses. You conquer impulse with pre-made decisions. 
We live in Oklahoma, and the, and the best thing about eating in Oklahoma is buffets, right? I mean, everywhere you go, there's a buffet. If you want to ask someone to eat, oh, I don't know, someplace with a buffet, right? And I like the way Jerry Seinfeld talks about buffets, and watch what he says. What, what is it about the buffet? It does fascinate me. There's something about it that breaks down the mind, reason, judgment, portion, sizes, combinations. Nobody would go into a restaurant and say to the waiter, I want a yogurt parfait, spare ribs, a waffle, four cookies, and an egg white omelet. <laughs> People build these death row, last meal, wish lists. They, these, it's like a working model of all their emotional issues and personal needs, and then then they can't decide when they're done, so they just start spinning like a robot vacuum with kale chips, maple bacon. They bump into the wall, muffin, 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 muffin. They start accosting strangers. Excuse me, where did you get that? What is that? I didn't see that. That's a caramelized chicken leg. I gotta try that. Give me yours. You know where they are. You can get more. Come on! The buffet breaks down mind, reason, and judgment. Is it true? I remember one year for Thanksgiving, my parents decided we would, my parents and, and Terry decided that we were going to go to Silver Dollar City. So much fun. We stayed in a cabin out there, but we went out to eat for Thanksgiving. And so one of the few places that was open was Golden Corral. And uh, we waited in line for, what, three hours to get in there? Terry's like, yes, we did. I'm in agreement with what he just said. Where two or three are gathered, thus saith the Lord. We get in line there, and there's this like huge lines going through the turkey and the gravy and the stuffing and everything. And then I looked over there, and I'm like, there's this itty bitty line. I'm like, I want to go to the short line first. And Terry's like, oh, Mark, you got to eat healthy. Even though it's Thanksgiving, you should eat healthy. You know what the itty bitty line was? Steak. Nobody knew that the itty-bitty line was actually the good line. I come back with four steaks on my plate, and Terry's like, what are you doing? I said, this is what you call good life decisions. In Proverbs, it says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. So when you owe money, you're, you're serving and you're, you're locked in there. And it, it actually eliminates decisions you can make because you're always thinking, I've got to pay this back. I've got to pay this back. Well, the second thing that we have to protect is we have to in, protect from impatience. Because we, we see things like, man, I want this. I want it right now. I don't want to wait for it. I want it right now. When I was in high school, I wanted a pair of basketball shoes. They, they were brand new. They were so cool. They were Reebok pumps. And guys, you get to know, it has a little basketball in the front, and you would pump them up, and it would put air around your foot. And it's supposed to be like walking on air. And they were so cool. You can tell how cool they are because nobody knows what they are anymore. I mean, they lasted, I don't know, 18 months. And Back when my parents' budget for buying me a basketball shoe was $65, this basketball shoe cost $150. So my dad said, hey, you're going to have to earn the extra money to buy this basketball shoe. I'm like, okay. And so I had a job, and I'm working. And I, I remember because I'm buying a basketball shoe so I could play basketball. 
And my, my boss called, and, and I was at school, of course, and he talked to my dad. And he said, hey, um, I have a, a, a position open tonight. Mark can come in and work if he wants. And my dad volunteered me for it because he knew I wanted the basketball shoe. But what my dad didn't know was I had an opportunity to go and play basketball that night. Well, I went into work because I wanted to earn the money for this basketball shoe. Long story short, um, I spent all the money that I'd saved for this basketball shoe on a girl, and it wasn't Terry. So it was, it was a bad investment, a bad investment. <laughs> Guys, take note of this. Only spend $150 on someone you're going to marry. I'm going to throw it out there for you. See, when we're ruled by impulse, we, we take our budget, where I talked about my parents taught me to, to live on 80%, well, then it turns into 100%, then it turns into 120%. And now we're just trying to keep up with our impulses. Here's what Ron Blue has to say about impulse. So, Ron, a 28-year-old man, 27-year-old woman, married for three years, come to you. They've saved a few thousand dollars, and they want to buy a home. They hope to get pregnant, start a family. And it would be an unusual situation if somebody had accumulated $100,000, $150,000 all on their own since college, let alone potential college debt. And they come to you for advice and say, we want to, to borrow money for a mortgage against the home. How do you counsel them? Well, I would counsel them to, uh, I would not counsel against taking on a mortgage. Um, because when you buy a home, you're buying a lifestyle. And so it's, it's, it's a non-economic transaction to some extent. It's, it has economic consequences, but it's, you're buying something other than the house. So my counsel to them would be make sure that you've saved enough down payment so that you can stand the risk of downturns. So I, I would never counsel somebody to probably buy a home without putting less than maybe 20% uh, as their down payment. So it's called delayed gratification. You may not be able to have it today, but if you plan for it, you're going to have to not spend in the current to have it in the future. That means that's why it's spend less Say that current. one more time. You're going to have to not spend it today to have it in the future. So if you want a down payment on a home, you've got to not spend it today. It's, it's not economically foolish necessarily to rent while you're doing this at all. If you follow those principles, spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, and build some liquidity and set long-term goals and give generously, it will work itself out. It, it does work itself out. Did you already said you're going to have to not spend today to have in the future. How tough is that? It's really tough because of our impatience, like, man, I need it, I need it right now, and I'll do whatever I have to do right now. So in 2005 to 2008, people were buying homes at 105% loan rates. Why were they doing that? Because they were figuring in their down payment to the loans. And then 2008, does anyone know what happened in 2008? Everything crashed. And suddenly, the housing market was upside down. You know, we, we, we look at 
life and we're like, man, I, I, I want to go there. I want to be there and I want this. And I, I remember when I was in college, they were making fun of my generation. If you're young, um, your parents always make fun of your generation. It's just a generational thing to do. But they were making fun of my generation because we wanted what our parents had when we graduated from college, and they kept telling us, it's not going to happen. And I remember, um, we, I remember one economist stood up, and he was telling a group of college students, he said, I just want you guys to know you will not make as much money as your parents will, made. And he got booed off the stage. Now, that's not true. I mean, he, our generation made more than our parents' generation made. But there's this thing called inflation that's kind of raised it up a little bit. But what is he telling us? You've got to be willing to put in the sacrifices to get there. Where are you pretending that you can get ahead without practicing gratification delay? Where do you need to wait? The next thing we need to protect is our savings. Listen to what Ron Blue says about protecting our savings. You didn't seem to have a problem, Ron, in the book with the idea of getting rich. But in a get-rich-quick world, you suggested get rich slow. That's right. Get rich Explain slow. that. Well, you know, the only way to get rich quick is to be really lucky <laughs> or to be born into the right family. Uh, and most people have to work for a living. So if they live within their income and they do that for a long time, they're going to come out way ahead. I, uh, uh, I said, look, if, if, you, if you don't spend $83 a month that you could spend and just put it away when you get out of college, let's say, or school, high school, and you do that for a working life, you're going to have saved forty dollars or $50,000, okay? However, because of the laws of compounding, that could be worth hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars. I can save, it, it used to be I could save 40000 and under the, the interest rates, I could have a million when I was 65. Today, I might have three or 400000 if interest rates don't change. So I save 40000 to have three or 400000 Or on the other side, I overspend by $83 a month. It didn't cost me 40000 over a working life. It cost me what it could have earned, 300000 400000 or whatever. So a little bit over a long time frame works, and you'll end up just fine. When Terry graduated from college, three weeks later, we got married. I remember one time having a discussion with her and saying, man, my sophomore year, I went to work for Sears. If I would have taken all that money that I made for Sears, I would have stayed working for Sears and just put it in the savings account and continue to take out those I called them zero interest loans, but they didn't start getting interest until, gradu until after you graduated. And I, I said, at the end of my five years of college, I owed just a little over 25000 I said, but if I would have saved all that money, I could have written a check and paid off all of my student loans in a heartbeat. And I go, I look back at it, I'm like, man, how foolish was I? How do we get to the next step? You know, we, we know where we are, and wherever you are on, the, on that steps, you're always like, how do I get to the next step? And, and I have stories of what, 
what it looks like when, when God has blessed you to be able to be generous and how God will see you through these. We always want to know, how do I get to the next step? What does it look like? The answer is practicing the five principles. We don't get to the next step unless we do the five things that God has, in his Bible, has said, do these things and, and, and your life will be great. What creates stress for us? Paying bills if you have more month at the end of your paycheck than you have paycheck. You know what, you know what I'm talking about. You have two weeks left, and, and, and suddenly you're like, oh, man, I have two weeks left, and I have like a week of, of paycheck left. What, what's going to happen? How am I going to do this? How am I going to manage this? That, that's stressful. We live where God has called us and God has challenged us to live. Great things happen. If we avoid the use of debt and we build margin, if we save money, then God can use us in a major way. Because here's what can happen. God can use you to bless somebody else because you've built up margin. You've saved, therefore you can go out and you can bless someone else's life a great place to be. It really is a great place to be to, to go up to someone and say, hey, I just want to bless you. I want to, take out the, I want to take out the eat, or I want to do this for you. I want to do that for you. That's what God has called us to do. Christianity is not a solitary experience. It is a community experience. And when we bless other people, guess what happens? We raise the community of faith. That's what God's called us to be. God has called us. John Wesley said, we are not holy alone, but only in community. We experience holiness by, by coming with each other and encouraging one another and holding one another accountable and seeing great things. If we avoid the use of debt and we build margin, think of what God can do for us. I'm going to... Close this in prayer. I'm going to turn things over to the pastor, April, and she's going to talk a little bit about Glow Night tonight and, and some things to expect. But thank you guys so very much for, for joining us. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now, God, that you would be with us this morning. I pray, God, that you would bless us and encourage us, God. Help us, Lord, just to uh, seek you with everything that we have. And I pray, Lord, that you would just be a blessing. Help us, God, to be a blessing for you. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to protect what you've given us so that we, in turn, can be a blessing to others. We pray this in your holy name.